comes to Alberta elections, the path to power is a numbers game. Rachel Martin sold Alberta out to Justin Trudeau, and all we got in exchange was a carbon tax and no pipe. Recently, it seems, there have been major upsets at the provincial government level across this country. This summer saw the rise to power of Ontario Premier Doug Ford. PC majority is now what the CTV News decision desk is calling 72, the number up there right Who now. wasted no time in placing his boot heel directly over the throat of Toronto City Council, slashing the number of municipal representatives in half. This fall, the Coalition Avenir Quebec was elected and went straight to work on legislation that many critics, especially in Montreal and the surrounding suburbs, are calling flat-out racist. What really matters, because it modifies the Quebec Charter of Rights and Freedoms in a way that is likely to curtail what have been recognized rights since, well, that document since 1975 for the first time. Most recently, Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party rolled into power in Alberta in a giant blue pickup truck. First UCP majority government in this province is big four on stampede grounds in Calgary in that blue Dodge Ram any minute that there'll be a promotion. Despite multiple racist and homophobic so-called bozo interruptions from his party members. This is more than just a coincidence. This is a political renaissance for austere, socially conservative political powers who aren't interested in negotiating and aren't afraid to play dirty. In contrast, Many Canadian cities feel alienated by their higher orders of government. Typically, we see different value sets in major urban centers. People who live with diversity begin to celebrate it. People who have experienced smog days tend to care more about pollution. Over 80% of Canadians live in urban settings. And yet, constitutionally, cities are creatures of the province and have no real autonomy. So... How's that working out? This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the phone room we borrowed from Park People in 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, our urban affairs columnist Trisha Wood helps us wade through yet another Toronto transit plan. And McGill University Law Dean Robert Leckie explains the pushback from Quebec cities against the provincial government's proposed secularism bill. But first, Alberta just slogged through its own recent provincial election, electing the right-wing United Conservative Party led by Jason Kenney. Predictably, jobs and oil were the focus of the race, but what does a new government mean for the urban agenda in Edmonton and Calgary? Writer Tim Querengesser lays it out for us. Stand by. Okay, Tim, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, looking at the election results, it seems like it's a, sort of a tale of two cities where uh, Calgary voted uh, wildly differently than Edmonton, which is interesting to me because... Uh, municipally, uh, both cities seem to have fairly progressive and fairly well-respected mayors. That's true, yes. <laughs> um, I think there's some very different on-the-ground realities in the two cities, um, which are linked to their basic economic drivers. So Edmonton is 
to a large degree, whether it's completely true or not, seen as a government town. Um, and it's been shielded in some ways from some of the harder, harsher, meaner, bleaker parts of the downturn that we've seen over the past four or five years here in Alberta. So um, we've still had construction happening. We've still had development happening. Uh, if you flip that and look at Calgary, you have uh, one of the highest uh, unemployment rates for a city in the country. Uh, you've got downtown office space at a huge huge vacancy rate. I think it's around 24% or something. So um, Calgary is definitely more directly linked to the resource economy uh, than Edmonton would be, even though both are directly linked. So uh, whatever has happened in that resource economy with the falling of oil prices and other things that have really led to the some of the anger that we saw expressed during this election campaign, that's really been centered in Calgary. So um, as an Edmontonian, I would understand the the result kind of based on that. And uh, when you look at the two uh, sort of front runners, I mean, this this was a bit of a, a wild election, uh, <laughs> a lot of moving parts. But I think the, the two front runners still seem to be uh, what was the government, uh, Rachel Notley's uh, provincial NDP government, and the new uh, United Conservative Party led by Jason Kenney. Can you compare and contrast their uh, respective uh, municipal plans. There wasn't a whole lot of ground between them when it came to municipal plans because, to be frank, the municipal plans weren't uh, front and center to either party's um, election campaigns and platforms. Um, Jason Kenney and the UCP really focused on uh, a rural or suburban sort of Alberta. There was a lot of talk of uh, crime rates in the rural areas and his plans to combat that. Uh, a lot of discussion about how we were going to get uh, Albertans back to work. Um, and that was really focused. I mean, if we want to just take it metaphorically, we see Jason Kenney over the past three years driving, crisscrossing Alberta in his blue Dodge Ram pickup. Um, it, it, he really evoked that um, rural or non-urban side of Alberta in mm-hmm. his messaging and thinking and even platforming. So there there was that side. And then conversely on the NDP side, um, because they were in a sort of defensive posture, uh, they were being attacked on the carbon tax, on the economic downturn. Um, it, 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 to me, uh, as looking uh, at this, it, it almost feel, felt like they were trying to create some sort of olive branches into that side of Alberta. So just before the campaign uh, was launched, we had the NDP with an outgoing uh, Minister of Transport uh, basically greenlighting a bunch of promises for new expansions of roads, twinning of roads, adding to lanes on ring roads. It was uh, he, he was being mocked uh, um, from the progressive side mo- most uh, powerfully for that. Uh, but really, the, the the city side of things, the municipal plan, really didn't figure into the messaging that was coming out of either campaign. Uh, that That's my take. Um, I was watching for it, and it's something that I was definitely most concerned with, but um, I didn't see my, – my appetite for that wasn't uh, satiated, let's say. So really just no urban agenda to speak of during this campaign? I wouldn't say no urban agenda. I mean, obviously, 
cities were discussed regularly. Uh, Calgary was constantly discussed as, you know, the, as I already kind of pointed out, the, the, I don't know, the, the ground zero of what's happened in Alberta over the past four years, just the downturn, the general shrinking of that economic engine that um, has sort of created this idea of what Alberta is over the past few few generations. So Calgary was discussed, Edmonton was discussed, but not in a way that um, you might expect if you were concerned with transit, if you were concerned with affordable housing, if you were concerned with some of the things that the province uh, as a government can really have uh, a decisive impact on as you know a funder for programs or projects. One thing that uh, the Notley government did do, uh, and perhaps you know, in, in in the lead up to the election, this this was an attempt to win over some votes in the city. But uh, they they int- attempted to enshrine uh, funding for uh, the various LRT lines in Calgary and Edmonton uh, using the carbon tax a- as the s- source of funding. Uh, what do you think about that plan? And does that plan just hit the chopping block as soon as the premier designate becomes the uh, the official power? So. Y- as you point out there, um, one of the first things, if not the first thing people are expecting the new government and Jason Kenney as premier to do is to axe the carbon tax that the NDP government formerly created. Um, Kenney was very vocal about um, calling into question the NDP's framing of uh, its, its carbon tax as paying for some of these things that it was promising. Basically, his argument was that, you know, uh, this is just a general revenue thing, and the carbon tax is just feeding that general revenue. So um, it was just a kind of, he, he he talked of it as as a spin thing. So um, basically, both parties promised and committed to what has been committed to, if that makes any sense. Uh, so the Green Line Phase One, I believe, has been committed to um, in Calgary. In Calgary. That's a low floor system. Uh, phase two, on the other hand, isn't really clear what will happen with that. Um, the Valley Line West here in Edmonton, as well as the Metro Line, both have been committed to uh, expansions um, on that front. And we've got money coming in not only from the province on that, but also the feds. Um, what's interesting is that in 2008, Alberta created something called the Green Trip Fund, which was $2 billion to go toward transit. Um, that money ran out in 2016, um, and what comes next really hasn't been clear. And what it seemed to me as an onlooker was that the carbon tax was kind of taking that, that, that urban agenda under its wing and, and, and funding programs uh, toward transit. So you had carbon tax money ostensibly going towards things like, you know, transit expansions. There was funding even in like Fort McMurray for certain things that would expand transit under the carbon tax. So without that carbon tax, without that revenue coming in, it is unclear to me uh, where money will come from or be found to beyond just the commitments that have been made, just the expansions of these pro- these uh, these projects, because um, Calgary, Edmonton, we're, we're, we're still in catch-up mode on um, getting off of our car dependence. You know, we have some of the most uh, sparsely populated or uh, least dense development uh, in, in cities in Canada, and we've got, you know, uh, a car dependency that's uh, off the charts in some ways, and 
these projects are basically trying to be the first step toward changing that. And without their expansions, I don't know if that will be successful. Was social housing talked about at all in this campaign? Or uh, was it just kind of assumed that, it, you know, if we could turn things around economically, we wouldn't have the need to talk about these things? It was talked about, but only in the way that it was talked about. Um, many, many things were talked about. It wasn't a focus. It wasn't something that was, uh, you know, daily on the news. It wasn't something that I have any sound bites uh, echoing through my head from either of the party leaders. So uh, it was definitely not a not a, um, a, a pillar of any campaign. It was something that sort of a box that was checked, I, I think. And um, we even saw here just before the election, we had our mayor, Don Iveson, calling on the province to start finding mon- more money for affordable housing. I mean, we're facing these incredible pressures on the affordable side uh, of, of housing here in Edmonton. Uh, we've got a, a real problem with homelessness and with uh, dependency on certain kind of social agencies within the, the inner city that really put pressures on the, the city that it doesn't really exactly have funding sources for and really needs to work with the province um, to to tackle. And yet during the campaign, we were talking jobs, economy, um, some really high level stuff. And, um, you know, given that the UCP has in a way, promised a period of belt tightening and austerity going forward. I don't know where affordable housing really falls on that list of priorities then. So to be honest, I'm not expecting it to be a focus going forward. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in, in Toronto, we have a, a provincial premier who could not really bring the majority of the city uh, to heal. And uh, so he for all intents and purposes, tried to break the city. Uh, you know, he slashed council seats in half. Um, you know, he, he's he's really, uh, he's got us under his thumb. Are you uh, concerned or have, have there been any whisperings that, uh, that uh, Jason Kenney will take the same approach to uh, municipalities? I haven't heard that. And to be, to be frank, I don't expect that. Um, I don't think Jason Kenney has the same, let's say, longstanding grudge against a place that I kind of see in uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, with Toronto. I don't think Jason Kenney hates Edmonton. I do think Jason Kenney um, feels a little bit frustrated with Edmonton at the moment, uh, if I can put use diplomatic language. Basically, he was shut out here. The UCP was basically shut out here. Where there's a, a few ridings where they might have a toehold, but uh, I don't think that there's going to be a vindictiveness or um, revenge here on Edmonton. Um, I do think that the economy here is, is like we, we had our chief economist recently just talk about forecasting and, you know, like things are not looking super bright. Um, the growth is not really projected. Uh, the population booms that we've been seeing are, you know, I think trailing off when you look at we have something like 8,000 uh, units of uh, inventory on the real estate market at the moment. It's just a it's a very tough time right now. So um, I think Jason Kenney uh, wins if he helps Edmonton win as well as Calgary. So ironically, he might be pro cities even without even talking about it like that. And uh, from the city level, looking outwards towards the rest of the province, uh, what's next? What's on the horizon? 
well, I mean, we've got um, at the very micro level, you've got things like um, mobility companies wanting to come into Edmonton. They already have a, a foothold in, in Calgary. So you've got Lime and Bird and other companies wanting to do bike share and scooter share. Um, the question is some of the regulations that the province has on its books limit these sort of things, if not uh, ban them altogether. So uh, in past, the NDP was very um, open to looking at things like bike regulation and stuff like that to open things up and, and, and embrace change. I'm not certain that that will be a priority for the incoming government. And I, I'm wondering what that will mean for whether we finally join the rest of uh, North America and having a bike share and scooter share that's uh, viable here in our two main cities. Um, as far as beyond that, I think transit is the big focus for me. And I do question without a green trip fund, without the carbon tax, where um, revenues will come from to help cities fund those sort of things. Uh, I also do question the Municipal Government Act, which sort of cities live within uh, as, the, as the act which they have to um, exist and kind of adhere to. Um, it's a provincial act, and there was there was change and kind of uh, amendment and evolution during the NDP time in government. Uh, again, that's that's where cities can and should be and have been advocating for change and wanting more more powers, you know, more ways to raise money so they can build things like transit. I'm not sure, again, if that will be uh, a focus of the incoming government. Um, I think the incoming government sees some of those things as, you know, nice to talk about, but really we're concerned mostly with getting Alberta back to work, as as, as he says. So in the next while, I think cities are going to kind of hunker down and have to um, go into an almost austerity footing themselves. And we're already seeing that here in Edmonton. I guarantee you're seeing that in Calgary where tax rates are, are going through the roof because those downtown offices are empty and that tax income is not coming in. Um, it's going to be a very tough time for cities, I think. And you can find Tim's podcast, WalkCast, wherever you get those. Now, transit is something Toronto never tires of talking about. It seems as though when every politician at every level of government comes courting votes in the six, they come armed with a napkin covered in squiggles, a bold, often unrealistic vision for Toronto transit. Now that the Ford provincial government has released yet another one of these visions, York Geography professor, Code Red TO member, and spacing columnist Tricia Wood Tells us what makes sense, what's fantasy, and what's missing from the conversation. So, Tricia, uh, we have another map. Uh, <laughs> as a geographer, this must be an exciting time for you. It's a pretty map. Uh, yeah, it's a very pretty map. A, a brand new transit map, a, a grand scheme for uh, the city of Toronto and the surrounding region to an extent, uh, brought to us by the Doug Ford government. Uh, what are your initial thoughts? It's a $28.5 billion plan. Yeah, that's the total plan. The province's share of that is much, much smaller, which is, I think, really significant and should be in the frame every time we talk about it. Mm -hmm. Because one of the main issues before we get to the, the beauty of, you know, these lines and lack thereof, um, is that the city will have to, you know, cough up a substantial amount that we're not at the moment prepared to 
do. It's not in the budget, right? Right. But in terms of that plan, I mean, it's it, it's certainly an interesting one. I mean, it's good, obviously, to see some interest in the relief line. It's not quite as good to see uh, a possible revisioning of its actual route, mm-hmm. um, particularly without details of you know studies, plans, business cases uh, of you know why that. Um, the destination um, of Ontario Place uh, seems to suggest developers are perhaps involved or or they're hoping will be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, extending it north, of course, is a good idea. Uh, the city has always wanted to do that, to mm-hmm. extend it north of Bloor. In different phases. Or Danforth, I should say. Yeah, in different phases because it's such a costly project. Right. And I think the other problem is, is as big as the $28.5 billion number is, it's probably not big enough. It's probably not the real cost. Uh, and certainly the time frame is not a realistic one. The time frame we've been given is uh, 2027, so eight years. Yeah, I, I don't think that's realistic. I mean, there is some discussion of, of some possible new technology, mm-hmm. um, but the scale of the project um, and then, of course, anticipating that, you know, things go wrong and things get delayed and that we're not exactly sure where we are in terms of design. Usually we usually we can make a confident prediction uh, of how long a project is going to take when we're at, you know, for example, 30% design. Um, and we've got some details of what's actually involved. It, it may be that the province has more than they're sharing, but if they do, they've they've done that on pretty short notice, right? They haven't been in government for even a full year. Right. So, um, you know, if, if there are more detailed plans, they were done in a, in a pretty short time frame as well. Just to set the table for the listeners who might not know, so uh, what we're talking about, we're now calling the Ontario Line. We used to call it the Relief Line or the Downtown Relief Line. Uh, it's been uh, debated about and, and uh, imagined in some form or fashion for about 50 plus years, about as long as there has been a, a Toronto subway. We've been talking about this line that uh, primarily would uh, sort of run uh, roughly along Queen Street uh, to take the burden off of uh well, at first to be an east-west connection to the Young Line, the first line that was built. And then uh, once the Young Line was built, uh, the areas around Bloor Street started developing more. So uh, council at the time decided that, no, we, we're not going to build uh, this planned subway along Queen Street. We're going to build it along Bloor. It turned out, uh, I think, you know, lo- we get a lot of use around the Bloor Line and probably a lot more development happened in that area because of the Bloor Line. So we've been talking about this off and on for years. Uh, we reached the point in, in recent history uh, of a, an environmental assessment for uh, some version of this line. Can you tell me a bit about that? We're just finishing, or we've just finished up with the EA for the section that would run between Pape Station um, and then coming down to, I think they now uh, have it planned all the way to, to come across to the university line, so to Osgood. So that's the part. That, that we have detailed plans for and we are prepared to go ahead with in the very near future. Um, I know that City Council has asked, in fact, that any approach to building this line with the new plan that the province has uh, be staged. And part of that is so that at least that part can go ahead immediately. If we are going back to the drawing board to include the rest of it and how is it all going to fit in with the project and even to debate perhaps the you know, the value of that line, because of course, taking it down to Ontario Place, which may have um, some benefit, um, misses out, you know, the anticipated connection from uh, Osgood going going west and north, right? 
Um, but if we're going back to the drawing board to to talk about that, and we don't begin, you know, the actual construction until we've done that, then then for sure we are delayed. Right. And so, as you alluded to, um, part of the thinking on, on the provincial government's side uh, for being able to meet this very intense deadline is this new technology that apparently Doug Ford heard and his, quote, jaw dropped. Do we know what this technology is? Do we have any idea what it could be? I hear things like Barcelona and Copenhagen thrown out, but as far as I know, we don't know exactly what technology we're even talking about. No, nothing's been confirmed. Um, The earliest guesses were maglev, which is, you know, Cool, because and I could see uh, Ford's jaw dropping because it's basically flying trains. So mm-hmm. uh, I get it. Um, but no, the more common guesses these days are, um, yeah, the technology um, which is used in uh, on Barcelona's Line Nine, um, where you have uh, instead of having the third rail below on, at track level, right? Where we do now, it's a the power comes from above. They're smaller. Um, lighter trains um and because of that the tunnel construction is also different and i think smaller Mm -hmm. so there may be some efficiencies there um and and it's not that we shouldn't explore you know other possibilities but that is an entirely different technology where obviously the cars are not interchangeable with other lines and it's also worth noting that you know barcelona's project was uh, uh it went massively over schedule right As they typically do. Um, And I think it went massively over budget, but I can't remember how much over budget. What I remember is it went massively over schedule. It took much, much longer than anticipated, Um, which isn't to say that we can't learn from that. But the the key parts to mega projects not kind of spinning out of control as they tend to do are a really rigorous business case at the outset and a very public, transparent process where like everything is put out there. And you have the public, but also you have, you know, a wide range of experts and elected officials, you know, who can comment and and catch problems and raise issues um, and that you always be willing to turn back if somebody raises an issue and you realize, oh, actually, this is going to cost twice as much as as we thought it was um, mm-hmm. and that you'd be prepared to step back. But it's those those early stages where you can kind of bring it in and also be realistic about the sort of deliverable, like what the impact is. One of the other um, aspects of the so-called iron law of mega projects, like first they, they go over budget, they go over time, mm-hmm. uh, but also they underdeliver. So, you know, when you have ridership projections uh, or economic impact, um, we sometimes, uh, we sometimes exaggerate, you know, intentionally, knowingly, and we sometimes just delude ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And, and we get very optimistic about, oh, it'll ca- you know, carry a million people. No, it'll carry a billion people. Sure. Um, and the way to, you know, have realistic expectations so that you can properly budget is to do the work at the beginning. So where are we now? Well, we are in an era where we don't even know what technology we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? We, we do not have public discussion, we don't even know what's going on. And it's related to the upload conversation as well, right? Where Lindsay's report is still confidential. And, you know, we're not having uh, a rigorous, public, transparent conversation. uh, And we haven't seen, at least, you know, a a rigorous business case uh, for this line. And for also prioritizing this line and its extensions over others that you know, we're on the city's plan, but are not on the province's map. Uh, which kind, which lines are you? So specifically the waterfront LRT plans mm-hmm. and uh, the Eglinton East LRT, because those are two important priorities for the city for which there are 
you know, decent business cases. Right. Um, the Eglinton East speaking. LRT would go to U of T Scarborough, which is a major hub. Yeah. And it would also go through areas of the city um, where we know we have significant populations of people who have lower income and much, much less accessibility to the rest of the city in terms of mobility. They have weaker transit service. And especially in Scarborough, there is a real need for people to move around within Scarborough, which is not to say that no one goes downtown, but most people are just trying to move around Scarborough. Right. And a very large percentage of people in Scarborough uh, drive. Um, but they don't really have good alternatives in a lot of places. And the LRT was going to serve a lot of uh, neighborhoods that are very poorly served, as well as a very large student body at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. And for the Waterfront LRT, uh, I mean, it's been on the books for years and years, but uh, it's kind of been quietly in the background. We, we haven't had the same major debates about it, at least, you know, in the headline news uh, that we have about, say, Scarborough or, you know, uh, other transit projects, Shepherd, Finch, you know, uh, so what what is the importance of the waterfront LRT, and why haven't we heard as much about it? Yeah, it's interesting that it it sort of quietly hummed along. So I think people just assumed that it was going to get built because waterfront Toronto, because there are so many aspirations for, you know, developing the waterfront um, that I think people just kind of assumed it made sense and and that there was enough support behind it. Because of course, waterfront Toronto doesn't only include the city; includes the provincial and federal governments. So. I think there was a quiet assumption that everybody was on board. Mm-hmm. But, and then of course, when the Sidewalk Labs project came in, you know, that kind of transit, public transit is essential to their vision of what they want to do there. Right. So, you know, again, I think everyone thought that, well, that one, of course, is just going to fall into place. Uh, but then it's not, it's not on their map. And instead there's this rapid transit uh, only to Ontario place. Right. Which is, a, you know, a very different line. I've never seen anybody argue for that. doesn't mean that there isn't a case, but I haven't seen one. Right. And on these advanced time schedules, yeah. we kind of need to have been building upon previous discussion. Yeah. And a rapid transit link that, that comes across Queen and goes down to Ontario Place does not connect with the rest of the waterfront at all. Right. Right. Access to the waterfront is pretty weak in this city. Mm-hmm. And people who live along the waterfront, uh, and you know, that's more and more people all the time, um, they have a, a lot of difficulty getting around in their own area and accessing the, you know, their jobs elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, this, doesn't, this doesn't address that. You know, it accesses one point, but it doesn't address you know, how it coordinates with the rest of those plans. And as I said, those plans aren't on their map at all. Another uh, big uh, plank of the provincial the new provincial plan uh is the scarborough subway uh again we're returning to this and i mentioned it in you know i'll be brief just to you know save us both our mental health uh but i i mostly bring it up in terms of uh you know kind of transitioning to talking about the the proposed upload because beyond uh beyond the idea that uh, province can more easily raise the funds for transit expansion which fair enough okay sure they can uh the secondary argument for uploading uh you know the the toronto subway system to the provincial government was that uh transit plans get bogged down at city council on the municipal level and we go back and forth about what we're going to do and what we're going to build and the main thing the main project that is pointed to uh, to sort of prove this case is the scarborough subway in actual fact we've We've kind of had a plan. We've been building towards that plan. These things take a long time. We've debated it. The debate has been reopened, but it, you know the time frame hasn't really suffered because of these debates. Um, but what will 
you slow this project down, uh, is going from what had been an agreed upon one-stop subway extension into Scarborough from Kennedy uh, to now we're, we're going back to an older plan, sort of an older idea of a three-stop subway into Scarborough. That will slow transit back down. And, and now the time frame we're told uh, for the Scarborough subway extension is 2030, which is uh, years longer than the Scarborough RT, which it's meant to replace, is going to last. It's held together with duct tape and, and, and a prayer. So um, I only bring that up <laughs> to transition into uh, the idea of uploading the subway and, and how that somehow the provincial government is going to be a better steward of these projects than, uh, than the city council for all its faults. Yeah, certainly the Scarborough subway history and now future planning is is not evidence that that the province is going to do a better job. You're absolutely right. Uh, City Hall has never held up uh, the Scarborough subway. Yes, it takes a long time. Yes, these things get debated. And there's a lot of work that, you know, that goes into every detail of how to make these work. And that's, that's important. And one of the reasons it's important that the city be involved, both its elected officials and the public, is that getting transit right is is very much a local issue like you know having a station at 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 this part of the intersection versus that one you know the difference of several hundred feet can make a big difference in in ridership and accessibility and and so on so we we do have to have those those local conversations but you're absolutely right they haven't held it up this is absolutely going to hold it up because even though we've had a conversation before about a three-stop subway, this is not the same three-stop plan. Mm -hmm. What we had talked about before was three stops between Kennedy and the town center, including the town center. Mm -hmm. And now they're, they appear to be talking about um, three stops that continue um, the line past the town center because they are aiming for what some councillors had been in the debate as well but never successfully um, won that debate, which is to eventually connect, to orient it so it goes north and uh, connect it up to the uh, the anticipated shepherd line, uh, either LRT or subway, as, as some are still uh, campaigning for. Right. Um, and that's a problem for exactly the things that I was talking about. The orientation uh, of that station, like... Changing where the stop's going to go, whether it's a terminal and the the station box, you know, points one way or it points another one. I mean, th that those are big decisions, actually, that have big impacts, that, engineering wise, obviously, but but also in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a totally different plan, even though we've had a three stop subway before, or, or we've talked about one. Um, that's not it's not the same one. And the other thing that's interesting is that that appears to be part of the upload conversation, but I think the Richmond Hill line is what the upload conversation is primarily about. The young extension to Richmond Hill. Yeah, to Highway 7 there. I thought it was very interesting that, uh, I guess it was sort of November, December when this kind of, um, you know, really um, became a, a very live issue that the first... Um, you know, spokesperson for this was the mayor of Markham, mm -hmm. you know, on the radio talking about how important it, 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 you know, it was and how urgent and why this was a priority project and said something like, you know, well, it's always been in the top 15 projects for the TTC. And there's a very big difference between being in the top 15 and suddenly being the most urgent. Mm -hmm. There is, uh, you know, a lot of ridership between uh, Highway 7 and Finch Station. 
there's also a major bottleneck. Exactly. <laughs> and there's Bullock. a lot of unmet demand. And as much as the relief line would help the system, especially if it's north of Danforth, it doesn't actually, it isn't going to provide the relief to the young line that we think it is. There mm-hmm. is a lot of unmet demand also along uh, the young line. There are people who live uh, relatively near there who don't take it. Um, because they can't get on in the morning. You know, you, yeah. it's, you have to wait for several trains at, at Eglinton, right? right. So, um, so it's not that there isn't, you know, transit demand. Um, and it isn't that we can't contemplate extending TTC subway lines into the suburbs. It might not be the best idea, but it, it, I, think there's, I think it's worth a conversation. Certainly we've set the precedent with one to Vaughn, mm-hmm. um, for which there's a much weaker case. Mm-hmm. actually, sure. uh, then the one to Richmond Hill, there's, a, there's a, a better case in terms of ridership. Is it a subway case? I, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, but it, that's, a, that's a problematic project. Um, you know, there are certainly questions we need answers, but for which we need answers. But more importantly, that's the one that's out in front. Mm-hmm. And it's because Toronto has such concerns that it has stated very publicly uh, about extending the Young Line, the upload seems to be, you know, about extending Toronto transit again beyond Toronto's boundaries and perhaps not allowing the city to stop that project. Right. So what's really missing from this conversation that we're having right now is the operating expenses, which local transit advocates have been calling on the provincial government to step in uh, for years. Since since the subsidies coming from the provincial government were cancelled by the previous uh, conservative government under Mike Harris in 1998, it was kind of downloaded to the city and no one really ever picked up the slack. And we're still, we're talking about expanding a network, a network that has a significant state of good repair backlog to the tune of tens of Oh, yeah. Billions? 20 billion. 20 billion dollars. So we're talking about expanding a network we can't uh, afford to uh, keep in a state of good repair. And and we're also not still, after all these years, um, you know, after over 20 years, talking about how how we're going to pay to simply operate it, to keep the lights on, to keep everything running. And one of the worst things that has happened um, in this whole conversation or whatever it is with the province, of course, is that they have reversed the gas tax contribution that the previous government um, had uh, promised. And in fact, that when the conservatives were campaigning in the election last year, they said that they would keep, Um, but they've reversed that decision. And that very small amount of money in terms of a share of a contribution towards transit was nevertheless significant to the city and the city's budget. And so, you sort of hit us, you know, twice, because even if you had maintained that, we still would have been stretched for operations. The city of Toronto needs so much more uh, subsidization of operations. We're so far behind the rest of the continent on that. Um, But to say you're going to expand, you know, do this capital expansion uh, for which we don't have, you know, the money to operate now, Mm -hmm. and then say we're also going to reduce what we contribute to operations instead of good repair you know, it, it's an absolute no-win situation. And what it means is that the TTC would be faced with, or, you know, whoever is running it at that stage, but we're faced with either reducing service uh, or raising fares or both because the money is just not there. And just to give you a sense of how far behind we are, 
So we have, it's, it's the city that basically subsidizes the TTC, right, to the tune of more than half a billion dollars. Um, elsewhere, you have normally sales taxes, sometimes gas taxes, um, that are set as dedicated funds for transit. Right. And they're often in the United States, you know, and, and in Vancouver, where, where it was unsuccessful, but they're passed by referendums. So Los Angeles's transit system takes in more than $2 billion every year from dedicated sales taxes that go just to transit. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the scale of that money when the, uh, the revenue, the TTC's revenue is just shy of $2 billion a year. Right. Right. So our, our, our one great effort um, that was unsuccessful, you know, at, at finding another source, which is the tolls, that was going to bring in an estimated $200 million and it wasn't going to all go to transit. Right. We are yeah. so far behind in terms of subsidization. It, like the difference is, is hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Chicago, it's the same. It's not quite as great as LA. Um, Boston, it's the same, you know, where you've got um, these, these dedicated taxes that go to transit and that sustain the system. And they are moving far fewer people with lots more money so they're able to provide better service. Mm-hmm. So we should be going in that direction. We should be trying to catch up to those cities. Instead, we are now going in the opposite direction. That can only hurt the one, the one local transit system in the region that's actually really working and really serving the city. Well, Trisha, uh, normally I, uh, I try to leave on a button of optimism, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I think uh, people need to take this seriously, and I hope they do. So do I. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Finally, the Coalition Avenir Quebec provincial government, under the leadership of Francois Legault, has been pushing a so-called secularism bill, which would ban public employees like teachers, cops, and judges to wear any form of religious symbol while on the job. It's strong criticism all over the world, but especially in the urban centers of Quebec, where diversity is not only necessary for a city to function, it's encouraged. Recently, Montreal Mayor Valérie Plante and opposition leader Lionel Perez issued a bipartisan declaration opposing the proposed legislation and Toronto City Council passed a unanimous motion to express solidarity with their Montreal colleagues. Robert Leckie is the dean of the Faculty of Law at McGill University. One of his research areas is constitutional law, and he's added his voice to the opposition to Bill 21. So, Robert, to begin, uh, you know, uh, for listeners outside of uh, Quebec, uh, all we've probably heard in the headlines is uh, that there is this Bill 21, and people are calling it a, a secularism bill. Yes. I mean, so th- this is uh, the latest in a number of legislative efforts out of Quebec City to sort of specify the secularism of the Quebec state and to try to deal with the problem of visible religious practice uh, in the public sector. Right, and this includes, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, ways of uh, formal dress or uh, uh, sort of crucifixes, kippahs, uh, hijabs, a- anything like that? Yeah, so, I mean, part of it is the idea that whether you're a citizen receiving services or a public servant delivering them, you'll do it with your face uncovered. So there's a clear sense for trying to rule niqabs sort of off the table. And then the other thing that's gotten a lot of attention in Bill 21 is the prohibition on the wearing of religious symbols, as you mentioned, 
and that's for whole sectors of public employees. It's, it's not everyone, but it's a lot. It's teachers, uh, all government lawyers and notaries, a number of people exercising what are characterized as positions of authority. And so all of these people, the, the basic starting point is that they could not wear any kind of religious sign. And then the bill goes on to say that people who are currently in a position uh, don't, are, would be kind of protected from that. So they, they'd be grandfathered but they wouldn't be able to take a promotion or to be moved around within an organization, they'd lose the protection. Right. And to do this, this requires an amendment to the Quebec Charter of Rights. Is that correct? It's not clear if it requires it, but the the bill includes an amendment to the Quebec Charter, uh, kind of consecrating a principle of secularism. Mm -hmm. And the the biggest thing that, that they're doing to try to make sure this thing goes through smoothly is that the bill states in it that it's intended to operate notwithstanding or, or despite uh, rights in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms mm-hmm. and the protections in the Quebec Charter of Human Rights. They're breaking out the uh, the sort of infamous notwithstanding clause that uh, Ontarians recently uh, were reminded about when uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, slashed uh, the number of uh, Toronto Council seats in half. Exactly. So something that's a sort of nuclear weapon in the Charter that isn't used often, and, and some people think it's best used only when a government has lost in court and, and had a court declare that there's a problem with its law. But in an attempt to kind of bulletproof things early, the government is using these from the, from the get-go. So uh, you, you said recently in a protest about Bill 21 uh, at uh, Côte Saint-Luc uh, that it's, it's unprecedented to amend the Quebec Charter of Rights to reduce the protection of rights. Can you tell me a bit about the spirit of the Charter of Rights and, and uh, how you see this as, as being uh, sort of opposed to the spirit of it? Yeah, sure. There's actually two things that strike me in this, this amendment to the Quebec Charter. So the Charter was enacted in 1975. It predates the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's been amended at various points along the way. And, you know, in 1976 or seven, they added sexual orientation, uh, you know, gender identity. They've added various things along the way. And sort of the key features are that normally the additions are increasing the scope of protections. So when you add sexual orientation, you're, you know, you're expanding to protect gays and lesbians in the areas of life that matter most to them. Uh, but also the main amendments to the Quebec Charter over the decades have been done with the, the unanimous consent of all the parties in the National Assembly. Mm-hmm. And Bill 21 is, is striking because it's supported by the governing Coalition Avenue Quebec, and the Parti Québécois, but the two major parties in the opposition, the Liberal Party and Quebec Solidaire, are opposed to it. And so it's a it's a very divisive way to be amending the Quebec Charter. Right. And on a municipal level, uh, recently in Montreal, there was a, a bipartisan declaration opposing this bill uh, from both uh, Mayor Valérie Plante and uh, the opposition leader, Lionel Perez. Uh, I'm interested in that because... Uh, I seem to see a theme recently in uh, sort of provincial politicians strong-arming municipalities, and uh, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about uh, what this declaration means to you. Yeah, I mean, so the the city comes at it. I mean, one of the most obvious workforces affected by the thing would be uh, provincial police officers or municipal police officers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you had the mayor and and the leader, leader of the opposition saying this doesn't work for Montreal. And it reminds me of the sense we sometimes have that there are like a couple of Canadas, that maybe the people living in the two or three or four biggest 
cities have more in common with one another than they may have with the surrounding regions and their respective provinces. And certainly here we sense a real opposition between Montreal, where, of course, uh, the population is much more multilingual, much more diverse, where lots of immigrants are based, and the region and, and the suburbs that elected the provincial government in Quebec last October. So it's a, a kind of a reminder of the potential tensions between the, uh, the, the regions in the city. Right. Beyond Montreal, uh, just to name a few, uh, Montreal West Mayor uh, Benny Masala uh, has said that he simply won't enforce this law. Uh, also, Westmount Mayor Christina Smith has uh, expressed uh, her displeasure with it. Uh, over in Toronto, uh, Toronto Council recently voted uh, to declare unanimous support for freedom of religion and expression in solidarity with Montreal's council. So uh, I think you're correct. I, I think cities... Uh, are coming at uh, the idea of diversity and uh, religious freedom from from a fairly separate place than than a lot of provincial governments. And it's interesting, even on a broader sort of North American scale, uh, you've had sort of President Trump pulling out of the uh, Paris Accord and on, on environmental things, and then some major municipalities in the U.S. have attempted to sort of step up with the regulation within their jurisdiction. So this idea that maybe the cities will be standing up a little bit more um, against perhaps more right-leaning governments is really interest- an interesting one to follow. Right. And, uh, you know, Montreal might have a case for a, a little bit more autonomy. I, I noticed in 2017 there was a, a provincial bill that sort of gave Montreal uh, a few more uh, powers. Uh, they, they call them metropolis powers. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Well, it, it, it goes a little farther, but not nearly, you know, not as far as the municipal leaders would like. And clearly not far enough to make a difference in, in, in a case such as this one. Um, so the, I mean, the, the provinces really continue to control municipalities to a substantial degree mm-hmm. and to sort of keep emphasizing the idea that municipalities are really simply creatures of the provinces which are, are regulated at the, at the province's pleasure. Right. And, you know, constitutional law being one of your areas of research, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not asking you to predict the future or, or to suggest that, uh, you know, we reopen the constitution, which you know most experts say would would be nearly impossible, and and if possible, would take you know decades, generations to to do and accomplish. But uh, is there some kind of avenue where uh, cities can express their autonomy? Uh, you know, given how badly the odds are stacked against them. I think I think it's going to have to come from the provinces to control the cities. So if if the province if a province can recognize that there is diversity within its population, that the same kind of principles that justify a federation might justify differences within the province, you know, nothing stops the provinces from doing that themselves. I, th- I think it's going to have to come at that level. I think you're right that opening up uh, the whole sort of federal constitution to make a special place for cities would take a huge amount of effort, you know, a, a very unlikely outcome. So I think that maybe the task for people who care about cities is to be educating their provincial governments to think about things a little differently. In the meantime, what what do you hope uh, to see uh, within these sort of uh, dissenting municipalities? Uh, what kind of ground could they cover? It's hard. The, uh, the mayor of Montreal has been very uncomfortable with the, uh, the expressions of, of refusal to apply Bill 21 if it's adopted. She hasn't wanted to go quite that far. Um, Maybe what the cities can do is to emphasize who their populations are, how diverse they are, how they'll be affected by the law, and also some of the uh, the, the practical problems trying to implement it. I think that's 
one of the things that hasn't gotten enough attention. But Bill 21 is actually going to be extremely difficult to enforce. Um, for, one, for one example, it has a, this prohibition on wearing religious symbols, but it doesn't specify what a religious symbol is. It, it doesn't define it. Right. And so, uh, you know, you might think my kippah is religious, and I might tell you it's worn for cultural or traditional reasons. And who, who's going to decide who's going to be right? Um, but if you're going to be denying me a job or a promotion, you've got to have a pretty clear legal standard. And I don't think one is there yet. And with the majority of uh, you know the population of Canada living in urban centers, uh, is there any chance that uh, if if these sort of urban centers unite, uh, that uh, that these provincial powers back down, or, or at least uh, you know sit down at a table and and uh, you know become willing to discuss? It could be that strength in numbers can be shown in that way. I mean, one of the dynamics in a number of the provinces, and we sense this in federal elections too, is that uh, I mean the, the regions outside cities typically have more members of parliament for uh, for their smaller populations than the cities do. And so the cities can be kind of underrepresented in the National Assembly, in the, in the provincial legislature, in the House of Commons. And so that, that makes it a bit harder. Right. Um, but that certainly there's lots of urban dwellers, and if, they, if there was coordination to pressure governments, you know, they, they should be able to have some impact. All right. Well, Robert, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your favorite podcaster, Subway Enthusiast, and College Dean. A rating, review, or subscription on iTunes will help us reach new listeners, or just tweet it out if you've got the time. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca, that's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Until next time. Watch out for men in big blue pickup trucks. Cheers. Cheers.